because I was working so hard to try and please, then I started self-isolating from family and friends because the work was so intense. And that's a pattern that we've noticed in Black Female Project is number one, people being told they can't, they're not meeting expectations, being organized out either by there's no more funding or hey, we had a really creative, one woman, she said I was pushed out, they moved me into a fellowship like because I was too vocal. Um, very creative ways of not having to deal with something that's different than what you're used to. And the fact that this, it may sound rudimentary, but it is, I don't see you as successful. Therefore, in my mind, even though you are doing things that would lead anyone else doing what you're doing would be considered a peer. For some reason, you just, just doesn't, it's not right. There's something about you that's just not meeting our our expectations and no 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 you know you're not going to be paid the same as everyone else you're not so going to be paid the same as everybody no else no way no way no what i was when i was negotiating my transition um and i said i think what you need to do is eliminate my position until you can figure out what you want to do with this area of work um the whole demeanor changed and i was asked well how are you going to take care of yourself what how are you going to take care of yourself they want to know how you were going to take care of yourself because of course if if he's not going to take care of me how am i going to make it oh got it I was going to say, you could say, well, uh, with that half a million dollar settlement that you're going to give me. <laughs> By the way, regarding that, so I talked to a couple of lawyers about the situation, and this is what the, the classic one I love so much, that I would encourage people to... Um, you know, if you have an opportunity or something's not right, say something about it or document it in some way. There was no HR department. It was a nonprofit organization. There was no way to that I thought to report, although there are places in the state. They said, look, there's no documentation that you ever complained. You never wrote a letter to the board. You never said anything was wrong. This is really, really, really unfortunate. It's hmm. an awful situation, and it happens every day. Yeah, it happens every day. That so you never complained. Well, you know, one of the issues that I, I found, like in my work with different organizations, uh, especially dealing and, and with people of, of color, that a lot of times, I'm saying a lot. I mean, this has happened enough times with clients that I've seen this that you'll have somebody. Maybe there'll be maybe one or two African Americans in the organization. And people are a little bit intimidated, uncomfortable, awkward about what to say. So they kind of don't say anything. And then it's time for maybe initial, uh, initial review. And they don't really, really review you because they're really uncomfortable. And they don't really want to tell you that something needs improvement because then they're afraid of being called racist or whatever. Or they just don't know how to say it. So they smile in your face, and then at the end of the year, you get a notice, and the notice says that you're fired. And, I mean, and this has happened with enough of my clients of color, particularly black clients, particularly actually women, but men too, mm. that at the end they say, well, nobody said anything to me. My reviews always said I was doing fine. Nothing specific, but they always said that I was doing fine. And then all of a sudden I'm fired. And... They said, if I would have known that something needed improvement from the very beginning, I could have worked on it. 
But what happens, and when, and when I've talked to some of these people who, not always, but oftentimes are white, so how come you didn't give them any type of criticism or constructive criticism? Well, I would have, but I didn't want to be accused of being racist. Oh, so you just waited and then you just fired them. Okay. So then it becomes, well, let's really mainly hire people who look like us because I don't want to be uncomfortable. And it's so much easier to tell somebody who looks like me that they're making a mistake because they won't accuse me of anything. Does that sound so? Um, that one? So I before so Black Female Project is celebrates Black women who yeah, thrive at work. Yeah. Celebrating Black women who thrive at work and preparing young Black women for the realities of the workplace. So how do Black women navigate structural racism and sexism? and continue to move through leadership roles and have thriving careers. What we asked people to do, initially I was going to share my story and I said, well, we, we have to do more than mine if it's going to be useful. And so I asked some friends of mine and everybody was, first. the first thing people say is, I don't really have a story to tell. And about six weeks later, they're like, I think there's something I could share. And then at the three month mark, they're ready to write. And the the we did a year of writing and workshopping and that th we ask people to they have to relive all these experiences that they've tried to bury or get behind them that is very difficult it was the hardest thing I had done since my father passed away to uncover all of those stories and get it into a narrative that might be actually useful or helpful to someone else and we know when girls come in contact with the curriculum in that format personal narrative they won't get it all but when something happens to them they have a name for it now and they'll rem remember that story and the goal was to ask women so this was happening like for me this was I was sitting at my desk and the screen went blurry and I was like um so I'm, I can't really see um it had gotten to the point where I started suffering with migraines and you know how sometimes there's form of migraines. Yeah, that, ocular. Yeah. So the nurse working there, I mean, there was a nurse on site, a retired nurse, and she said, you know, maybe you should go home if you can't see. And I'm like, no, no, no. I have to. The thought that, <laughs> the thought that I needed to do something rather than take yeah. care of myself is a sign that there was something very wrong. But um, what I was getting at was Black Female Project. So um, women had to tell these stories. So we then asked them, what did you have? Stop and think about that moment. How did you feel? What happened to your body? What kind of support system did you have in place to get through that? So we know autoimmune diseases show up a lot. We know hair loss shows up a lot. And um, when women are able to, we had one contributor who said, look, I don't care what you do with my story. I just need to tell it and let it go. So just being able to document it is freeing for the women. We thought we were doing something for the girls coming behind us, and it turned out to be a healing project for us as well. Wow. How many women? Um, so um, we have personal narratives of about 15, well, maybe 20, including yeah. the anonymous ones. Um, the first nine were released in 2018, so the inaugural collection is available for download on the website at www.blackfemaleproject.org. And then we have a podcast at um, on SoundCloud to collect other women's stories. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then we've done live events 
we had a conversation a series in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Oakland. And then we also wow. have live events from time to time in the Bay Area. Wow. I, and you started this. Five, almost five years ago. I mean, this is your child. Yes. Yes. So women, you were asking about how many women. So we looked at this also as a research project. So during those live events and during our conversations, we've been collecting data all this time. And the number one thing people enjoy is just sitting in a room where they can tell, see people who look like them, whether they speak or not, and feel affirmed. Wow. I'm, first of all, I'm just really amazed. And when you started it, I'm going to ask, you, did you start it all by yourself? And what was the first thing that you did in order to start it? And who did you talk to, to to get it going? So the first thing I did was look for something like this. Because I just wanted a resource to understand what was going on with me. If my parents had prepared me well, and I was doing, this, this is what we tell girls, uh, black girls in particular, work really hard, do what you're supposed to do, go to college, and you'll be fine. And then somebody pulls a rug up from under you and you had no idea that there are some strategies that have been tested and they're tried and they work really well to make people unsettled at work. And there's certain things that work really well for black women. Like what? Like, like telling me that I haven't met expectations. Well, you know what? I meet expectations everywhere I go. So what exactly are you talking about? Like, this is problematic for me because I work so hard. And most of us, you know, you got to have a certain level of intellect to get into certain places and be able to, you know, we're sensing motivations and we're analyzing situations. Of course, this is the thing that this is maybe you can help me with this. Um, I, I believe implicit bias exists. However, if I have to analyze everyone around me and it's on me for my for me to be useful in any situation to try to have a basic understanding of the person sitting next to me, I then am infuriated at the thought that I, someone else can write it off as, well, it was just implicit bias. I didn't know. And now, of course, I'm not, you know, I understand. I've seen some of the science. Yes, I'm getting there. But that rubs me the wrong way because I think it's a... It's helping people be comfortable talking about it when it really goes back to what you said before. I didn't have to care, so I just didn't do it. I didn't have to care that you were going to show up different than me. I didn't have to care that um, when I perceived you as angry, it could have been something else, right? So when, when the um, old boss says to me, well, you seem really angry, and I'm saying to him, well, how are you defining that? And the, the, Jew, the woman from Long Island who's sitting across from both of us gets rolls back in her chair like, like, oh, this is about to be real good. Let me relax and watch. <laughs> because, of course, I'm not angry. I'm very impassioned about what I'm talking about. You're uncomfortable because passion in your sphere looks different. And women may or may not, you know, the feistiness of um, a small-framed woman who you don't, who you feel like you have control over versus a different type of woman showing up and taking up space, there's something that rises up for you. I don't have to like totally understand all the reasons why, but you don't get to call me angry. And some people are like, yeah, call me angry, whatever. But for me, that's too easy. 
Like, what else do you have? Like, let's, can we, if you're going to analyze me, let's talk about why you use that word in my name in the same sentence. So um, being able to have that conversation isn't always a possible. It isn't. And your point, I saw a lot in the research. You asked me, how did we start the project? Or how did I start the project? So I started doing research and asking people and looking for this kind of work. And a lot of it exists. What I wasn't, and I think there's more going on in college campuses and research departments, but that's really hard to get in to find until you either go there or get a contact. So I was looking for black female experiences detailed around work experience. There is a seminal work, Our Separate Ways, which studies the first group of women who came into corporate and it looks at black women and white women and tells their stories and they have a lot of data with that project. It was very helpful as we started. So I started, I asked a few people to write stories with mine so that we could then ask a bigger group to write stories and submit. The women who were writing, two of them approached me on separate occasions and asked for a time to meet the other women who were submitting. I thought we'd meet a few times while they were writing and that would be it for the live events. And here we are four years later, still convening women in conversations and now partnering with other organizations like um, um, NCNW, sorry, Nash, I, NCNW, you'll have to look that up because I cannot remember right now all of the acronym um, Black Teacher Project. We will have our fourth annual conversation with them in um, for Women's History Month. We have a format where the women, black women in the center have a conversation much like what we do when it's black women closed door only. Other people can come and observe, anyone, but we give the women an opportunity to step out. There's no Q&A. We do a small workshop with the people who are observing so they can process what they've heard, but we protect those women at all costs. So what we've learned over the last couple of years testing this out and modifying it when people ask us, can you modify here or there? What we learned is that that is still not safe for women. It might be a black man who speaks up and is uncomfortable because he's looking for a solution and we're just trying to talk about the reality of what happened. We're trying to be safe and say out loud that this happened to us at work. Well, you should have done this and that. See, our format was right. Let's keep that circle closed. You have the privilege to observe. So if there's any young black women listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. and we have all kinds of people who listen to this podcast, mm -hmm. would you suggest, would you suggest that... And Sounds from the Street is back. Sorry, I'm a little bit late. Uh, just getting getting my uh, shillings on. And thanks again for tuning in. Um, should be having a few guests coming in later. Uh, Frightwig and the next are going to be opening for Flipper in a couple months, actually. And I guess uh, we're going to get you ready for that show. I believe it's on July 13th at the Great American Music Hall. So you definitely want to tune in uh, in a couple minutes or stay tuned. Tuned, I guess I should say. And as you probably already know, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony happened yesterday, and there was uh, a lot of uh, you know well-known artists were inducted. Uh, Radiohead was one of the top ones. Stevie Nicks, The Cure, Roxy Music. So of course um, that's going to be in the news. Um, but before I forget, I just want to say. Um, uh, one of one half of uh, 
uh, the general public passed away last week, Rankin Roger. So I just want to say rest in peace. And I uh, might be playing uh, some of the English beat later on. So you want to stay tuned for that. Uh, but we'll go straight into the news. So from the enemy.com, uh, let's see, David Byrne was there to pay tribute to Radiohead at their induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, they both changed our idea of what popular music can be and how it can be released and marketed to us. Uh, David Byrne has paid tribute to Radiohead in a speech as he inducted them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yesterday evening. Radiohead often references Byrne's Talking Heads as a major influence. They took their name from a song on Talking Heads' 1986 album, True Stories, and frontman Tom York was interviewed extensively by Byrne in 2007 for Wired. Johnny Greenwood has also spoken at length about the importance of Talking Heads' music to Radiohead. In his speech, Byrne said he was surprised and flattered that they took their name from one of his songs. He added, But I had to ask myself, why that song, that slightly goofy Tex-Mex song, why that one? We'll never know. He went on to say he was a huge fan of the group and that they richly deserved this honor because of the quality and constant innovation of their work and their innovations in how they release their work. They're creative and smart, a rare and inspiring combination. Byrne added, here's a tidbit. Radio 1 in the UK refused to play their song Creep because they found it too depressing. But then it started getting played elsewhere all over the world and, well, the rest. And another Capitol Records felt that they, what many considered to be their masterpiece OK Computer was career suicide and adjusted their release and marketing campaign accordingly. It eventually went to number one in the UK. Paranoid Android from that album was considered the new Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Whatever that means. I'm looking forward to seeing the movie and seeing who will play Tom. You can watch Burn's speech in full um, on the Enemy.com website. Burn spoke about his love for Radiohead's seminal albums Kid A and In Rainbows, saying he was a fan of their experimentation and creativity. Music that at one point sounded radical and on the edge now felt completely natural. Their last record, Moonshaped Pool, sounded very cinematic, sounded like a movie in your head. They both changed our idea of what popular music can be and how it can be released and marketed to us. For those things, I am honored to induct Radiohead into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The award was collected by Radiohead's Ed O'Brien and Philip Selway. Accepting the award, Selway said, this is a real honor and it's particularly special that David Byrne has inducted us. As David said, we borrowed a band name from him 30 years ago, and luckily for us, he hasn't asked for it back yet. I'd just like to say a little bit about what being in Radiohead means to me. It can be awkward and challenging sometimes, but I guess that's what kept us all interested for the past three decades. I'm beyond proud of what the five of us have achieved together, and I know that Radiohead wouldn't have become what it is without the five of us. O'Brien added, I just want to say this is such a beautifully surreal evening for us, and it's very far from where we have come from, but thank you for inviting us. Uh, inducting us into this Hall of Fame. It's a big fucking deal. I wish the others could be here because they would be feeling it. <laughs> oh, that's right. Tom York and Johnny Greenwood did not show up, which I thought was hilarious. 
I want to thank the others for their integrity, their authenticity, their commitment. I also want to thank them for the musicians they are. That thing when we play together, that collective sound that we make, some of the nights we have in the rehearsal studio where they're like transcendental moments. <laughs> Back in January, frontman Tom York confirmed that he didn't intend to attend the band's induction rock and roll induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In June 2017, Johnny Greenwood also told Rolling Stone that he quote-unquote didn't care about Radiohead's possible nomination that year. Maybe it's a cultural thing that I really don't understand. I mean, from the outside, it looks like it's quite a self-regarding profession anyway, and anything that heightens that just makes me feel even more uncomfortable. And if you want to find out more, um, there's uh, a few tidbits I saw online, but you can also go to enemy.com. And I also want to mention I saw Tom York perform at Bill Graham, and I also saw David Byrne last year at Bill Graham, funnily enough, and both were fantastic shows. Those shows were probably two of the biggest highlights of 2018. So it's interesting seeing them, you know, kind of converge there at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Because um, I don't know, I guess they're considered rock music. I don't know. I feel like they're kind of in a genre of their own. But if you guys have listened to the show over the years, you'd kind of get as to why I say that, because a lot of that genre bullshit is just to make money. And I thought that musicians were just spoke supposed to make the music they want to make but anyways <laughs> other news surrounding uh the rock and roll hall of fame uh the cure were also inducted by trent reznor from another well-known band nine inch nails uh, the Cure performed five, five songs last night after being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in New York. Robert Smith and Co. took to the stage and performed Shake Dog Shake, a forest love song just like Heaven and Boys Don't Cry following their induction, which was preceded by a moving speech from Nine Inch Nails frontman Trent Reznor. In his speech, Reznor said, despite making challenging music that deals with the biggest themes, their impact has been gigantic. They've sold the best part of who gives a shit how many million records and been an essential touchstone in the genres of post-punk, new wave, goth, alternative, shoegaze, and post-rock. They've been in and out of fashion so many times in the last four decades that they ended up transcending fashion itself. Though they might be a hip name to drop in 2019, this wasn't always the case. Their dedication to pushing sonic and artistic boundaries while making music for the ages wasn't always rewarded with glowing reviews in the press. He continued, but they never failed. Whoop. I guess I was compromised. Excuse me. <laughs> oh, this is what happens when you rely on technology. Well, let's see. In, in and out of fashion, they might have been a hip name. Their dedication to pushing sonic and artistic boundaries while making music for the ages wasn't always rewarded with glowing reviews. But they never failed to attract a passionate, intelligent, and loyal fan base who always knew the truth. The Cure are one of the most unique, most brilliant, most heartbreakingly excellent rock bands the world has ever known. Wow, he's in love. In his acceptance speech, Smith thanked all those who had been a part of the Cure's story, for better or worse, and paid tribute to the much-missed former drummer Andy Anderson, who died recently after a battle with cancer. And uh, you can see some footage from that performance 
at theenemy.com or if you follow sites like Pitchfork, Consequence of Sound, there's a lot of, you know, tidbits circling around the internet. Um, I might be watching some of it later. Um, but as you guys know, um, a lot of that music is played on this show, but a lot of music that is not wouldn't be considered, you know, part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because let's face it, it's a little bit of a misogynistic thing, this thing called rock and roll. But um, anyways, um, I guess that's changing because they have Stevie Nicks was the first woman inducted twice, you know, hip hop is also being recognized in there. So that's a good thing. And uh, while we wait for some of our guests to arrive, stay tuned for more Sounds from the Street.
was Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. And Frightwig are here in the studio. How you ladies doing? Hey! hey. Woohoo! <laughs> and I don't know, can I hear you? I guess I can. I have all the mics up. Hello. <laughs> Hello. 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 Yes, I can hear you. Perfect. So tell me a little bit about your journey these recent years. <laughs> you told me a little bit. <laughs> How do you, I don't know, this might be a charged question, but do you think that women are finally having their due now? Like it's been way overdue, but now it's finally happening. I think if you look at the last, the 2018 election, mm-hmm. uh, over 100 women went to Congress, mm-hmm. to local governorships. And so I think we're starting to see that. Yep. Nice. That's a good thing. We yes. have a long way to go. We're 51% of the country. Yes. Yeah. Woohoo! <laughs> and bound to be more sooner rather than later. So you guys are going to be one of the opening acts for the Flipper Show coming up in July. How did that happen? Steve DePace reached out to us, and we had, uh, you know, some back and forth, and on how we how Frightwig was going to perform, and mm-hmm. we've got it all sorted. We're gonna rock it hard. Woohoo! Um, yeah, but we're old buddies, so it's nice. it's perfect for us to play again because we we used to play with them a lot back in the day, mm-hmm. like in the early '80s. Nice. They called us the flop side of Flipper. <laughs> and now you're on the upside. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I was really inspired by um, by Flipper's guitar player Ted mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. when I first started playing guitar. So it's it's great to get to play with them all the time. That's he even loaned you his amp, which he wouldn't loan anyone else. So that was a, probably a secret we shouldn't tell. But <laughs> secrets are the best, especially when they're on the air. <laughs> I still have my twin reverb, and I bought it in like 1983 uh, because he played. 82 right here, this board. It's older than me. (laughs) Still works. Give it a little love. Yeah, it's it's classic. Yes, definitely. I think they got it on Craigslist or something. You never know what you can find online these days. Mm -hmm. And where can we find you guys online? Are you on the Facebooks? We are on the Facebooks. We're such dorks we have a frightwig group page oh which i think in a lot of ways is better because we don't have to do all the band stuff because it's a group page but we gotcha. have a frightwig group page oh, everybody's invited everybody nice well i'm definitely going to be liking it after this show <laughs> and we also have a web a website uh it's www.frightwig.org uh-huh. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that it's not FM, it's not .com, it's yeah, it's an org. We're organizing. Things. There you go. <laughs> We're all yes. for organizing. <laughs> I like that. Um, seems to be a thing these days. Let's get organized. <laughs> how did you guys meet originally? Like, how did the band come together back then? Well... Um, it was in the early 80s. <laughs> <laughs> the way you were born, honey. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> and um, I moved to San Francisco in 1980. When did you move to San Francisco? Officially in 76. Wow. After high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Bill Graham. Um, mm-hmm. I saw mm-hmm. the um, Sex Pistols at in Winterland. Yeah. Nice. 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 Very I cool. There was no future then. Yeah. <laughs> and look at us now. No future oh, yeah, part yeah. five. So we thought things were so bad then, but in comparison. Oh, gee. Oh, yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. Unbelievable. 
Jeez. Um, yeah. yeah. But we met, um, I got a job working at these movie theaters on Market Street. Um, and a lot of musicians and artists of the day were actually, it was a big, it was a big scene. A lot of people who were performing artists worked there and that's where I met Deanna. She was so cool. She was in two bands and I oh thought, my god, oh my god, oh you're my so god. cool. <laughs> Ahead of it. Off. Oh yeah, we did. Yeah. We're still hitting it Yeah, off. we're still hitting it <laughs> Oh, I can see. <laughs> yep, we just started making our world in any way we wanted to make our world. Absolutely empower each other. We got a lot of attention quit very quickly mm-hmm. because we are women. So we got a lot of shows. We were not a very proficient musical band, but we put on a good show and we were like a sideshow. So we didn't we didn't um, care or I mean we didn't as- aspire to be pretty or acceptable or beautiful. Mm-hmm. like we just wasn't on the agenda. We didn't care. We just needed to say what we needed to say and we were both really angry. Good. We didn't have the most warm and traditional upbringing so that's we don't mm. know Jerry Springer but so we had a lot of oh, issues I remember that to show. work out so on, on the stage <laughs> on the stage with, yeah. with, with decibels and stuff <laughs> would you get into fights with the audience uh, sometimes, sometimes like we were playing up in Vancouver. Well, the stage was too high for anybody to come at us. Mm-hmm. But you had bronchitis. Oh, God. And we were opening for GBH. Oh, yeah. And we... Um, GBH brought the spitting crowd. That's right. And we're like, oh, and I can spit really far. Like, Joey from DOA taught me how to do it when we were touring. And so... They were spitting at us, so we would go up to the corner of the stage and hock a loogie on him and then walk away back again. <laughs> we were playing in Switzerland, and Mia has a song, A Man's Gotta Do What a Man's Gotta Do. It's like a funk song. Because we're all women, like guys would be saying, Get, uh, show us your tits, get up, you know. And we would be like, get up here and strip for us. And it became this phenomenon. And wherever we traveled, like, mm-hmm. we're going to strip for you tonight. And, you know, it wasn't <laughs> about a penis. It was about, like, the act. Yeah. And it added to our show. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. this whole thing. But I'm like, get up here and strip for us. And we're, we're in Zurich. Get up here for strip, strip for us. And so this drunk punker, like, chains and spikes gets mm-hmm. up on the stage. Mm-hmm. And he's just like rocking back and forth he's so drunken and I'm like I go in the mic he's too drunk to fuck and then his girlfriend lunges up on the stage and lunges for me and it's just like this physical altercation nice Um, but it is more of an art piece usually oh yeah it sounds enjoyed it very much that's great yeah it was good I mean in those days the whole like I think uh, male chauvinism was more acceptable. Mm-hmm. I think that that's we've come great strides. Now it's just less acceptable. Absolutely. But in those days, it was really acceptable, and it would be show us your dick, show us your dick, yeah. and and then we turned it around. It's like show us your dick, get up here and strip, and it was a really great way of, of not being victims. You know, it was a really great way of, of taking the power, and and the guys actually loved that. <laughs> <You> <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. And so that um, it's a good tradition. 
But now, these days, we we give um, our strippers a, a, a big unicorn mask. Yeah! So that they can be anonymous, you know? Um, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little more uh, flamboyant. Yeah, but also, you know, they, nobody has to know who they are if they don't yeah. want them to. There you and go. And we're women of a different age, and yeah. it's a yeah. different time. And now it's more for fun. So who doesn't love a unicorn dancer or two yeah. or and, four? And they don't have to take all their clothes off if they don't want no. to. I mean, there they never had to. Have, no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. yeah, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> they never had to, but they wanted to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shifting more towards like your music, do you guys have any new material, or are you just going to be busting out some of those old, old uh, hits? I think maybe about half and half. But and and there's also some. There's maybe going to be more new material. We'll see. It depends on the show. Mm-hmm. We're also like the reason like we were invited to play this punk rock circuit sewing circle in 2012 which was our a lot of our old dear friends put it on it was like a lot of first wave punkers Mm -hmm. like avengers and um but we that was a nice offer but what was going on around the country like i was so inflamed about these like congressmen and governors like you know if if a woman's raped and she doesn't get pregnant then that doesn't mean it was a rape if it was you know and I was just like really want I hadn't wanted to create or like Mm. get up there and voice my opinion but that was just so upsetting I thought we had this one I thought we're good on abortion and good on women's rights more than that right so that inspired me to write my song war on women and Mia has written two of the best songs about our times, um, Hot Air Rising and mm-hmm. um, Redistribution of Wealth. That sounds like a good one. Yeah, they're really poignant. and um, It's so funny because it's so many years later, but we just kind of looked at each other and said, do we have to say this again? <laughs> I guess we do, you right? know, because we do, because it's the same old shit. So... We have to repeat ourselves. <laughs> Same old shit. And um, who were your influences when you started a band? Would you say that you looked up to like Patti Smith, or were you like, "There's nobody to look up to, so we're just gonna fucking do it"? Well, I think growing up, like, like my first love was John Denver. <laughs> Truth, <laughs> not a bad choice. Down to uh, uh, David Bowie. Yeah, and that was my first love forever. But of course, Patti Smith and Blondie was awesome. And like I said, the Sex Pistols mm-hmm. for a brief moment were, sp- yeah. Um, but there were so many bands. But I don't think we were looking at any band. We that's the we thing. We were so yeah. like in our two of us in a warehouse in the cold like practicing and just like building and making and I think we'd seen bands or my from my personal opinion is I'd seen bands long enough and loved the nuns they were my favorite Mm -hmm. but um at a certain point I finally realized like I could do that I want to do that I'm gonna do that so then we you know started actively pursuing it yeah When I moved to town in 1980, Mm -hmm. um, the Mutants were my favorite, favorite band. The Mutants. And um, we worked at the movie theaters with a few of the Mutants, and it was just like, they were so good, so good. And um, who's been playing with them and, and the then, last and couple years? I get, uh, now I get to sing with them, which is such <laughs> a thrill. Cool. Um, so that's really cool. 
But as far as Fright Week was concerned, we we couldn't play enough to emulate anybody. Like we, mm. you know, our big joke is that like we will fuck up any genre of music because <laughs> no matter what we play, it sounds like Fright Week, and you know, it doesn't sound like anybody else ever. <laughs> That's great. So yeah, it just was. It was, and it still is coming from a really visceral place mm-hmm. that isn't a polished thing. Mm-hmm. And um, can people still purchase your music at record stores and stuff like that? I think you can at yeah. different places. I mean, I think up on Hate Street, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know, all of our music is online. All of our music is on SoundCloud. Okay. I mean, we actually have a forty-five, which I should. Did you bring anything? I'm. So, uh, I was going to bring you. A, I didn't bring any, but um, but we'll bring stuff later. I have that one <laughs> song. I can so, play it play you guys um, out in a minute on our website you know mm-hmm. we have yeah we're on itunes and cd baby and are going to be on Bandcamp. the new songs over the last few yeah, years you listen yeah. for free yay um, or just get a hold of us if you want some actual something that you can hold in your hand just go on to the, our website and contact me and i'll send it to you oh you're so easy yeah. to talk to that's what we like about you <laughs> <laughs> and so you're playing this you're opening for flipper um in july are you going to be playing any shows in between or is there something planned long term um we're playing on Mother's Day That's right. at the Oasis, mm-hmm. and Mia and I are playing acoustically. I got an acoustic bass, nice. and she's the proficient guitarist who's always constantly played, and so it's I'm, it's like full circle for us, mm-hmm. personally, mm-hmm. and we'll have different people supporting us, and we're going to have um, Chalky is going to play after the us. The Funk Wizard. I think he's been here. Does he have curly Probably. hair? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, he I know him. He worked here in the day. But yeah, anyway, something he's like that. a sweetheart and so talented. Corey Squire. And then we're going to rock it out. Like, so, we've, we're just going to do acoustic, but then we're like, we want to do that. So we're going to make a big <laughs> show. And mm-hmm. We'll do two sets. The acoustic set, and then Chucky's going to play, and then we'll have a rock set. Yeah. yeah. The... Um, and it's a benefit for races, R A I C E S, who work with asylum seekers out of Texas, and they're totally right on. So Mother's Day early show at the yeah, Oasis, five to nine. Um, our husbands might be in drag. Ooh. They're both o- totally open to it, which is <laughs> fun. That's we cool. Like fun. Um, but we'll see. Um, but we—it's our first show since the fall of 2015, mm-hmm. when our drummer Cecilia Kuhn passed away from cancer. Well, oh, she, 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 she was sick. She got sick, and she passed on May 4th, 2017. <laughs> so it's taken a while to want to play again. Totally. And it's really nice. Like we're not dead, and we have a voice, and you know we. Um, we love to be able to create, especially in the times we're living in. It's absolutely really it's cathartic. So there's a lot. Like, Do you feel like there's a lot more to write about? <laughs> endless material. Endless. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's yeah. it's funny because I just feel like writing a ton more political songs and then I yeah. think I don't know if people really want to hear that that much, you know? Like you you always 
it's the juicy, like, personal stuff that, that people really get into. And I, th- I find that really interesting. Yeah. Because people feel it, you know? If you're coming from the heart, they feel it in the heart. Yeah. Well, and one thing back to our show on Mother's Day, which I hope you will come. You're our new best friend. Yeah, I want to. Um, we're doing some storytelling with our, our old material from the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, you know... And we've, we're playing our, our punk rock songs. Like, my song, Only You, is, Only you can make a blue sky gray. Yes, it's true. You know, uh, that's kind of tired. But playing it acoustically and slowing it down and singing it, and people can hear the words. And we're going to give some of the backstory. Like, that song was about my first boyfriend, who I was so in love with. And I thought, we're going to have babies. And, oh, oh, my God, he made me feel so good. And then... I found out he was fucking around with a guy, and I'm just like, what? Okay, I am out of here. <laughs> uh, so, and I broke his heart. Ha ha ha. Good. Ha, good. Ha, ha. Anyway. Excellent. That <laughs> sounds amazing. And you know what? I think that you had the last laugh. I did when we saw him up in Seattle in 2014. Wow. That wasn't a very good interaction. Was it at a show? Yeah, we did a quick tour up the coast with It's Okay from Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Robert know. Hecker, who was mm-hmm. in Red Cross, it's his band. I've seen them, yeah. Do you love that? We played with them at the chapel on the, our kickoff of our tour. I didn't see that one. I saw them at Burger Boogaloo a couple of years ago. Yeah. But I'd always, oh, Red Cross. you know, yeah. yeah. I've oh, always yeah. heard them, you know, on compilations and stuff yeah. like that. So. They're our brothers. Like, we've. Uh-huh known them since pretty much when we started to play like right and we would you know work on shows and just talk on the phone and they're so much fun they're like dishing old queens in their teenage years <laughs> <laughs> they haven't really changed what good good what do you think was so inviting about the bay area back then in terms of the burgeoning punk scene like san francisco los angeles like what was so unique about it compared to like the New York scene or the London scene that was happening? Well, one thing I noticed that is so, so different from the way that I see it now mm-hmm. is that the uh, the art scene and the music scene, visual art, performance art, music, it was all one scene. And um, the people who were going to the Art Institute had bands, Penelope, you know, did both, mm-hmm. and Fritz and, and Sally Mutant did both. And there was a big scene, and of course I was young then, so maybe there's a big scene of young people right now that I just am not, you know, in touch with, and maybe it is this really burgeoning, alive art scene, and I'm not a part of it, I don't know. But back then, it really was really alive. There was so much art being produced and music being produced. Mm -hmm. It was like, and you could afford to be here and be an artist. Yeah. And that was, you know, like we worked at the movie theaters for what, 325 an hour? Shoot. Right? I mean, and that was like a lot of free popcorn. Oh, God. (laughs) Soda and cake. It's like famine food for me. Like, (laughs) when you, you know, get really hungry, you put ketchup on it. Um, but but at that time, like we could work and have a band and gig all the time and go to parties all the time and, and art openings and it was just really really fun, and there would be like two or three hundred people every night up wow. on, on Broadway looking for the party. Nice. And and so that was, it was just a really happening scene I think. 
that I don't know. Like, now it's, it's now and I just don't know about it. I think when I when I started coming here, it was a lot. I felt like there was a lot of potential, but then money wasn't really. I mean, it was always kind of an issue, but it wasn't so much of an issue as it is now. Like when I go out, it's like I really have to, you know, save my money or yeah, find crazy. a way to get in for free. And it's like I don't know if people my age are that savvy like my mom's always like Aisha you're so savvy like how do you you know do all this like flights for free shows for free it's like well I didn't know how else to do it I didn't know unless I start selling myself on the street like how am I going to make it happen you know it's just like this disparity of of even with a $15 minimum wage the, the, it's just funny money like the, the whole city is just operating on this funny money level mm-hmm. where the service industry or people who do art for or music for a living it's a different kind of you know world well, um, my I work part time at Department of Elections and <clears throat> my manager is 32 and he's plays drums in like three bands in San Francisco nice. and he makes a good salary but he um, you know in discussion with young friends in bands like late 20s early 30s mm-hmm. you know it's just a different ball game yes yeah. my my thinking like we were like okay 100% into the music okay we're going on tour like we're renting out our $170 space on 3rd Street you know, but we were also gave everything up for it. Like it seems to me that some of the younger bands mm-hmm. that I know of, it's mm-hmm. like it, it's a different culture now. Like for us, it was like, oh, want to get a record out, but that was way before the age of social media yeah. and mm-hmm. and covering. Now, I mean, I don't even know what it's like. I I find my young friends are playing because they love to play. Yes, and that's always been. A thing with people who are like trying to make it is that I don't think you're gonna succeed and if you're not doing it because you love it and you Mm -hmm. feel this thing yeah then you're probably not gonna be happy but my point is that musicians I know these days are working full-time a lot of them professional gigs Mm -hmm. you know and then playing you know on Thursday night or sat you know um, I just would love to see people just quit their jobs Mm -hmm buy a cheap van and go tour the United States for a few years. Like get the if you, experience. Like, but yeah. that's me. So I, I, I get it. I respect everybody's. I'm not a musician, but I still want to do that. <laughs> 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 On the Road was my favorite book when I was in the 60s lit class. I mean, it's still my favorite book. But yeah, just that whole mentality of just like, oh, screw no. everything that came before me. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. Just live your life. And it's just one run-on sentence from here. Well, as young women, like just being that free and free and also um, fearless. Yeah. Like, you know, we would play, we played as many shows as possible day after day, and we would take off after we've played and drive all night into like Asheville, North Carolina, or whatever. And you'd get to the club, and like somebody would come out, some guy would come out and go, you want me to park that for you it's kind of hard spot to get in there <laughs> like no I can do it you better let me and I'd be like no, you go ahead go ahead and park it but it was really nice to be that free and just being creative and we would dress up and stay with people across America and then wow. they would come and stay with us and so there was fun. so that whole serial killer mentality hadn't really set in yet we ignored that fact 
That's maybe that was good. Yeah, yeah. selective I, selective I, awareness, right? Yeah, we were never busted, which was kind of crazy. Like you are lucky. And with frightwig, like frightwig is a slang term, and it means a woman who's hair is a mess and her tights are ripped it's a 50s sling term mm-hmm. but we really were that <laughs> we would, like, literally like we never looked like punk because we would wear like platforms or get matching waitress dresses or uh, just like yeah. what you could find at goodwill exactly. or i did that too Exactly. Look at this. This is not going to fit in at all. Let's yeah. try this. This is so punk because it's not punk. Right. Yeah. You're literally taking that idea to another level <laughs> and not kind of, I don't know, I feel like maybe people in my generation were taking it to, not. they weren't taking it literally, but they were kind of staying within the confines of it and not saying that yeah. there was other things happening outside of it, like, I only listened to the Ramones or, yeah. you know, like the original bands, but well, then there was so like much other stuff. I was saying, especially in San Francisco, it was so multi-musical, like all different types of music and playing together like it would be really interesting nights with a band like a ska band and then a mm-hmm. punk metal like a thrash metal or mm-hmm, you know and mm-hmm. then a country band and it was very nice. interesting yeah. and then, like, Karen Finley would would do a performance and mm-hmm. just like you know it was all it was all mixed up and it was all valid you know and then it it started to get when hardcore punk started like from, mm-hmm. from 80s and all like that mm-hmm. and then the gnarly mosh pits and it just testosterone overload and it changed the music it, and everything seemed to just narrow down in its own the little specific category yeah and then yeah. and it didn't cross-pollinate anymore and I, that was the really magical thing i think for me in the early 80s here mm-hmm. yeah i was going to tell you earlier but i forgot i saw the raincoats mm-hmm. i don't know if you remember them no, but i saw them before us uh yeah, yeah. they're from uh england but i saw them at great american music hall yeah. so it reminded me i was like yes and then there was another band that was influenced by them that opened for them and they're no longer in existence but what um band? Oh, i forgot the name it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool right now. There's a lot of female groups getting mm-hmm. together to play again, yeah, like Bikini good. Kills getting yeah, together. Yes, yeah. I'm going to that actually. Awesome. The, the one on the May 2nd. Um, so Toby posted last night she quit her job at the library. Yeah. Yay. And I'm like, you should go on tour or something. <laughs> Joke. But I'm really happy for her because she's such a good egg and she's such a creative person and she's been working at the library for years. And so I'm really happy she quit her job and she's going to tour and stuff. <laughs> yes. Living yeah. the dream. Um, I saw... Why, my memory is really foggy right now. I apologize. But I saw the other group, not La Tigre, but the other one, Julie Rune. Mm, yeah. That was the other project she's mm-hmm. been doing. Yeah. So I saw that, but I feel like this is the real one. <laughs> I, I think Julie Second, Rune you know, is more glamorous. And I a little bit, yeah. And Toyland is, you know, a little more girl. Riot girl. Um... Grass Widow, that's the band that opened oh, for them. Yeah. Do you remember them yeah. a couple years ago? Yeah, yeah. I thought, oh, Somebody like it's... we should play with them a few years ago. Yeah. They I don't know. In that um, documentary that uh, Patrick did, that I was in, and they were... Did you see it? It was like... Oh, God, what's yeah, it? I really liked them a lot, and then they just 
kind of disappeared or mm-hmm. broke up and kind of did their own projects after that. So that was kind mm-hmm. of a bummer. Do you know Jane Lee Hooker? Mm-mm. You should definitely listen to them. Okay. They're from uh, the East Coast. They're on tour in Europe right now, mm-hmm. but they do blues. They're mm-hmm. they're a really good all-female blues band. Like, nice. the real deal. Yeah, they're great. It's pop Ooh. blues, but they're Jane. such talented musicians, and their singer Dana is, like, she... She's a trained vocal voice, and she's like, it's just incredible. And they're just tearing it up in Europe right now. That's their second tour. Is it their second or third? Third, yeah. um, But they came into it like they have done their homework. Like they're really good at what they do. They've been in other bands like Nashville Pussy. Oh yeah, I've heard that. What's the the female band? Oh, oh, something. Anyway, let's yeah. move on. Before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's great. I was going to ask you guys. So, who are you? You know, listening to now. So that pretty much answered that question. And kind of another side note: one of the bands opening, or actually two of the bands opening for Bikini Kill in L.A. Alice Bag. Mm-hmm. Um, we with Alice. She's amazing. In 2015, we hung yeah. out a lot. And- we're backing band. Mm-hmm. She's such, and she's been doing the such amazing work. Like, you know, the last few years that mm-hmm. she just came forward. I think she was always writing songs, um, but her albums are fantastic. I loved seeing her, finally getting to see her live. I think it was at Amoeba on Hate Street, and that was uh, that amazing. Was a few last summer? It was a year ago. A year ago. <laughs> I had the picture yeah. come up. This was a year yeah. ago. I was like, kidding? <laughs> just happened. Oh, one thing I love about Alice is that, you know, she was early punk woman. Yeah. And then retired. Mm-hmm had her child mm-hmm. as a school teacher yeah retired yeah. from school Major teaching dude. and then she's back and she wrote two like books. that's so healthy yeah, yeah. her books are fabulous yeah. too yeah. Yeah. i have the book i haven't read it yet but it's on my list uh-huh. and uh la Boucherettes. have you guys checked terry out no, I know oh. of them, but I've never seen them. She's, I don't know them personally. I don't know why I'm so attracted to her, but there's something about her artistry that's so different. And they've opened for all these major acts like Iggy Pop, the Melvins. Yeah. Um, she's affiliated with the guy that was in at the drive-in, Omar Rodriguez. So they, yeah. she spent years like opening for all these you know amazing artists and then they finally did a headlining show a couple months ago or weeks ago and i missed it but now she's opening for bikini kill so i'm like okay but she's one of my favorites from like my generation where i'm like wow she's really like she's one of the only ones literally like taking the torch and you know carrying on the artistry part of it and she doesn't care you know what anyone thinks of her she's going to do it the way she wants to do it but anyways that's probably why she still has a voice Mm. yeah expanding yeah there's still i feel like there's still a lot to say (laughs) yeah and it needs to get said it needs to get said for fuck's sake yeah (laughs) any other surprises that we can look forward to at uh the flipper show where you guys are going to be opening we can't really talk about it (laughs) ted wants to see are you gonna have those horses and, and horses. costumes? Oh, yeah. costumes! Those Rhea, are always fun. Via and Rebecca, when we played 2015 punk rock sewing circle, there were three of them, and we played them all. Mm-hmm. We were fabulous. Everybody yeah. knows that. But they, you bought ball gowns at the thrift store. Well, it, it was funny because, like, I never, I, I. I uh, 
I moved to San Francisco when I was 16 in 1980, and I didn't finish high school, but I took the test, mm-hmm. right? GED, yeah. But I never went to a, a, a what is the... College? The, the, no, I, oh. to, I have degrees. Oh, you did? Oh, okay. I never went to a that prom. later. Oh, yeah. yeah, me neither. Okay. I protested that shit. But, but <laughs> the thing is, the punk rock thing, one of the... One of the um, they called it the homecoming, right? Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. So I got a couple homecoming dresses for Frightway <laughs> because it was like my prom, and it was it did feel like like this really nice homecoming because there were all these people I knew since I was a teenager there. Yeah. And it was really special. So oh, yeah. And, like, and we wore the prom gowns. And that's <laughs> reliving your had, best life. Uh, reliving the past I never <laughs> had. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> we had like we invited girlfriends that you know from when we were young that had played in a band you know for six months or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. had them up on stage singing like shaking their asses (laughs) and then we had a a carnival head this huge head do you know headdress like he was freaked out by that yeah it was scary it's Uh, it's on youtube it's worth checking out i'll watch it it's worth the sound is we'll send you some links yes send me some links and if you're not visiting with your mother you should come and see us play on may 12th yes (laughs) yes yes on my calendar but you really should come to forget about Frightwig you really gotta make the Flipper show <laughs> yeah, it's all the flipper. I'll be flipping men off at that show is that okay <laughs> um, and our girlfriend Rachel who was in Frightwig for a while a long time ago who's our dear dear sister is playing bass with Flipper so that's cool oh, nice. yeah. and she's great she's so fucking cool mm-hmm. <laughs> and, she's um, one of our oldest sisters she is she is I've been in many bands with her I think I've been in more bands with her than anybody nice yeah. she, we were in a band called the Mud Women in the 90s okay which is an all female kind of art damage band which was it was a cool it's band it's a really great band it was a good band you guys toured fun. quite a bit we toured a lot yeah, yeah we toured a lot yeah and it was fun that was the 90s the 90s. The 90s. So long ago. But it was yesterday. No, was it? So I guess I'll play us out um, with the retribution of wealth. Do you want to give... Redistribution. Redistribution it's, of wealth. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So this is, this is recorded for our as yet unreleased album that is just about done, but we don't have the money to release it right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite long, but it's worth it, I think. I hope. Just play the song. It's really nice. <laughs> okay. And it's with, um, it's with Eric True Feldman. He's playing... Uh, he's taking us to church with his massive red organ <laughs> nice I always see those at like Salvation Army like the one close to here wow well I'm like wow. one of these days when I got some extra money <laughs> I mean and space yeah. I guess I could bring it here <laughs> alright well thanks again for stopping by thanks, thanks for having us nice to meet you and nice uh, meet you hopefully we'll be seeing you in a couple weeks yeah woohoo woohoo <laughs> you six weeks six weeks gonna go by quick it is gonna go by really quick (laughs) all right let's see we're gonna make a fiendish plot
sell your spirit for some gold Every day the worker has to choose How to stretch that weekly check
right. How's it going? A-okay. It's kind of a, a nice feel in here. I like it. There's been so many times where it's kind of like a lot of energy, which is okay, but sometimes it's cool when there's not a lot of energy going on. I keep it on the low beam. <laughs> That's how we like to be. So how did you uh, become affiliated with Flipper and Frightwig? Well, uh, my guitar player, Jimmy Crucifix, uh, has played in many punk bands in San Francisco and L.A. Mm-hmm. And, of course, in uh, some of the bands that he played in, they, they supported Flipper. And uh, he became good friends with Ted Falcone, uh, the guitar player for Flipper. Mm-hmm. So when this whole uh, thing came up about Flipper getting on a national tour, mm-hmm. uh, there was some inside moves, and they asked us to be the opener for the show. Mm-hmm. And I felt like this is a great opportunity to get back into the system here again. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a great chance for the band to get out there and get exposed to everybody once again. I mean, we were together 40 years ago. Wow. And uh, it's kind of fun to be carrying on 40 years after the fact yeah. and staying fresh and vital. So this was a, a coup d'etat of sorts. <laughs> Absolutely. Did you guys get a chance to play at Great American? No. In fact, mm-hmm. well, I know Jimmy's played there before. I've never played there. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. this is this is once again, it's it's a great door opening for for my music and the band, and uh, we were looking forward to uh, being able to entertain everybody on July the thirteenth. Absolutely. That's the date. Put it in your calendar, folks. Yeah, I was, I mean, I'd like to say I'm surprised, but I feel like the last couple of years, like a lot of bands are coming back for the 40th anniversary, or it's just the right time to make a comeback. It's true. And in actuality, the only reason the band got back together 10 years ago, mm-hmm. there was uh, many attempts to try to get a first Mabuhe Gardens reunion together. Oh, nice. And I had been working with somebody who used to be the sound man for the Mabuhe Gardens, a guy named mm-hmm. Ted Oliphant. Mm-hmm. So he attempted to organize a reunion, and he even contacted the club. That was a different name, and I don't even remember what they were called. But he put on he put on a, a one night stand there, and we were on the bill mm-hmm. with a few other bands. And uh, I guess there was some resistance from the community because Ted had moved out of San Francisco. He was trying to do things. I think he was a cop in Alabama or something. <laughs> and uh, the people, the people in the community, did not appreciate Ted just walking back in and trying to put something together. So the, the gig pretty much failed, Bummer. even though it went on. But nonetheless, it put it put the next back together, and then we've mm-hmm. been kind of moving along for the last ten years, mm-hmm. and uh, now we're starting to get even better jobs. I think longevity has its revenge mm. because you can be successful just by continuing to hammer on and uh, keep on playing, and good things will happen eventually. Absolutely, and that's what's going to be happening in a couple of weeks. Um, do you guys have any other shows planned in the meantime? You know, we just did the knockout last night with the dogs oh. from Detroit, and that was a really good show if you didn't see that show you missed a good one um we're gonna do the hate street fair in in june so we got one we got one job coming up we're constantly scrambling to try to get jobs Mm -hmm. but you know in the long run it's working out because we are getting better gigs we're getting on bills with better known bands Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. the reputation of the band has always been solid anyway so uh, we came out of that first generation Mm -hmm. from 77 and 78 and uh even though that I didn't play it completely from from 79 on, I'd have to just say that, you know, once again, 
once you get the longevity, once you get the right people involved, good things can happen. And we're fortunate to continue playing here in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Right on. Are there any venues that you would want to play besides Great American? Well, I wouldn't mind doing the Fillmore. I was going to say. That would be a fun one. But on the other hand, if it didn't happen, it really wouldn't bother me either. Mm. Because I realize in the music industry, it's all about who you know and where the breaks are. And to tell you the truth, I've never been very good at getting the breaks. So I don't expect a lot. And because of that, jobs like uh, this thing at the Great American Music Hall are a real joy. Mm. Because it kind of vindicates... Uh, my experience to be able to get in and, and do do the kind of stuff that I really enjoy, which is playing music. The, the punk the punk genre has always been something very close to me, mm-hmm. and uh, this this really goes to the heart of, of why I play. Mm-hmm. Who is your favorite band to share the stage with? Or yeah, boy, oh boy, that's that's a good question. <laughs> um, you know, before I had the next. I did several other bands, and I think the most interesting one of them all was we got to open for Devo in May of 77. <gasps> Love them. And this is before they put out the first record. They were still touring in a van from Ohio. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they were like marveling at us because we had two guys that were picking up our gear, <laughs> and they didn't even have that. So Come it's on, kind of Mark. <laughs> interesting juxtaposition yeah. to be in a situation where, you know, these guys are just wanting to sleep in a bed and get a good night's rest. And the next thing you know, they're worldwide. And of course, Mark Mothersbaugh now, he's scoring movies, he yeah. reps for, for synthesizer companies. I mean, and he's very yep. successful and they, they deserve that success he did the soundtrack for the Rugrats TV show <laughs> yeah, yeah. don't was... let him get away with that one hey there's nothing wrong on there's that. nothing wrong with doing children's stuff <laughs> and it probably made him great money on the, on the yeah. other hand too oh yeah did you so you got to see them back then I've seen them more recently once when they did that tour with Blondie Rip uh-huh. It to Shreds and then they played um, the Burger Boogaloo have you been to that or yeah, heard of it yeah so that was that was pretty incredible seeing them there and they did this whole tribute to Divine because you know um, what's his face John Waters has been hosting it the last couple of years and it was kind of like emotional seeing that even though I wasn't around back then but it was amazing you you know just to see them like full throttle and people were just losing it because i also saw the damned and i thought people would lose it during the damned nope nope they didn't care about the damned they cared about Devo. well <laughs> to, to tell you the truth the dan was the first punk band i actually saw they played mm-hmm. the mab two nights in april of 1977 mm. and i had a friend whose band opened up for him i know one night they had crime open up and then my friend's band was called the street punks mm-hmm. from hayward and yeah. i ended up being a lead singer for them for about six months but when i went to the show i had heard the damn but i didn't know what they really were so seeing that for the first time i was i was i was doing the rock thing from the east bay and we were all into the glam thing we had long hair and wearing <laughs> women's clothes and all that stuff nice. and seeing the damned convinced me that it was time to change the direction mm. so immediately i got rid of the women's clothes i cut my hair and i came up with brand new material and started trying to get into the club mm-hmm. and uh I was fortunate enough to get noticed at the right times. And even though I'm not a headlining name like the Dead Kennedys or the Nuns or the Avengers, and give respect to all of them because yeah. they really were the thing that made the scene great in those days. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, okay, I was, carving out, I was carving out my own little road there 
And fortunately, I got documented several times in, in movies and TV. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because I was goofy enough to get get the visual on it. On the other hand, I kind of think, well, maybe I was just as lucky getting getting that time as people are lucky getting gigs at bigger venues or right. traveling the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think you guys would ever do like an extensive tour in the U.S. or Europe? Um, you know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't poo poo if they offered it to us. I mean, I'm 64 years old and I'm ready to go. <laughs> In fact, I laugh about it now. It's like I'm yeah. going, okay. It's 40 years later. Yeah. I'm playing punk rock. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm almost. I'm almost 65. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like living is the best revenge. I mean, a lot of people I know are no longer here. Uh, the Frankie and Johnny mm-hmm. and 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 uh, and the guys from Crime. You know, they're no longer here. Bummer. Um, the guy that started the band with me in the next, the guy's name was Britley Black. He was the second drummer for Crime. Mm-hmm. He he passed away in 2004 mm-hmm. due to complications from uh, drug overdoses and uh, and diabetes. Wow! And I'm sure he'd love to be involved today. Yeah. But once again, you know, you live that life. Yeah. And you pay the price for it. I, I guess you could say it was kind of like going to high school for me. After I got my two or three years of hanging out at the Mab, I realized I didn't have any new ideas, and I I grew up and uh, moved it along but mm-hmm. the the heart of punk which is more of an attitude thing which is more in your mind than it is the fact that you wear a certain type of clothing mm. or you spit on people or whatever it is <laughs> that differentiates you from the hippies it's kind of like no that never left me and in fact i feel more that way now than i did when i was 22 years old that's interesting yeah well it, you know once again you kind of look at life in the broader view and it's kind of like you know I did a lot of sinning back then, and it was good times for everybody. But the truth is, yeah, either you grow up and you move it along and you try to make something to yourself. And you can still keep parts of it. You don't have to lose it all. Mm. But you you tend to move away from the parts that are detrimental into your life. So, for instance, drug abuse. Yeah, I, sh- I, could, I, could have, I, I was smoking heroin with them guys. Yeah. I could have kept on going, fell right into the hole and gone to hell. But I realized at a certain point, it's like, I got to do something else else and make the best out of things so uh i turned away from the scene i turned away from all that mm-hmm. i wasn't ashamed and at the same time too i didn't feel like i lost anything yeah it was just the you know you you got to start doing different things and trying to make the best out of what's in front of you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what should people look forward to seeing during your performance well i would say first of all the next has always been very loud and very fast and the songs are short. We don't do we don't do extended anything, so we stick to the same format that we did in 1978. Gotcha. And what's interesting about it is we're playing that music right now. And to tell you the truth, it's very timely. It hasn't lost. It doesn't sound dated. Mm. And you know, in comparison to what other bands are doing, I think we hold up just as well as any of the other groups from that day or even today. Right. I definitely feel that way listening to, you know, music from that era. Um, And it's hard to say that. I mean, I feel like there's some great bands now, but it's hard to say, is it going to be, is it going to last, you know, another 40 years? Whereas this music obviously has lasted 40 years. 
Well, I think the reason that it lasts is number one, people don't let go. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's a good thing in many ways because that allows bands like mine to continue to exist. And it gives me kind of hope that I'm not going to be playing for two rednecks in a bar stool in Livermore. (laughs) And believe me, I've done a lot of playing in those 40 years. I didn't stop playing music simply because I walked away from punk. I mean, I think I'm going to speak for myself on this. I'm really a, a musician who's a chameleon. I change my colors as I see fit. I've done glam. I've done punk. I've done Buddy Holly tribute bands. I've done 60s rock. And, you know, through it all, I enjoyed every aspect of the genre. But at the same time, too, I realize it's like, well, you got to stick to the things that you feel that you're really capable of and can successfully perform. Mm -hmm. And the next to me is a representative of uh, lifelong ability to perform and, and, and pull that off in front of people successfully. Absolutely. Well, hopefully we'll be seeing more of you guys. But of course, July 13th at Great American Music Hall. Are you guys going on first? Or? Yes, we are the opener. So okay. we're going to have to come in with a bang. Because <laughs> I, I feel like anywhere else, people, if they don't know you or they know very little about you, yeah. they have these high expectations. So we want to kind of blow the roof off of that and give the best performance. And also, you know, support and fright wig and flipper because they're, they're wonderful bands. Yeah. And I appreciate appreciate what they're doing and the fact that we're still together after all that time yes it's a little mind-blowing <laughs> it is <laughs> yeah i have to say i was mind blown too because you when i was getting into punk music there you would still read like rolling stone magazine like you would still read actual articles because you didn't have the internet but you'd never think in your wildest dreams that you would you know meet people from some of those bands and get to interview them because you thought oh it's you know it was so long ago but i really appreciate this music and you know, I'm going to hopefully get something out of it. Well, that's the whole value of loving music is that yeah. you see value in what you listen to and enjoy. Mm-hmm. And eventually you kind of put your finger on a touchstone, a touchstone that's common to most human beings. Yeah. You, you you either feel the beat or you feel the theme of the lyrics. You know, some people are more... Uh, amenable to the words other people are more amenable to the music i have to admit growing up as a musician i never really listened to lyrics i was always listening to the sounds of the guitars Uh or the sounds of the drums and uh, i tend to focus on that even today when i'm listening to a song yeah sometimes the lyrics are interesting and i get into that but a lot of times it's like well that guitar player has this kind of sound or the drummer is doing a certain type of beat on this part and I, i get really fascinated with the mechanics of of performing music because uh, musicians bring interesting things into performance and into recording and uh, that, that keeps your love of music going forever and ever and the only thing that makes things better nowadays is the fact that with the internet mm-hmm. you can pretty much dial up any kind of music on a, on a source, either a subscription source or a non-subscription source. I listen to YouTube every day. And some days, I'm not listening to punk at all. I'm listening to Mozart. Another day, I might <laughs> listen to Indian music. I mean, I, I stretch my limits to what I can listen to, not just because I want to see what I can stand, but more that there's so much... There's so many ideas in this world, and we don't have the time to see them all. But Damn. ultimately, it's a challenge. <laughs> it's a, really, it really is a challenge to, to try to listen to something that's totally foreign to your ears and try to appreciate the creator of that sound. Yes. And uh, to me, that's the magic of, of, of all this that we experience every day. Absolutely. And I have to say, that's something about when I started doing this you know, podcast was a, a chance to you know, meet people who were like-minded, you know, 
people who aren't necessarily you know getting all the the streams on iTunes or Spotify it was you know having about having you know genuine human interaction and now almost a decade later I'm like okay I kind of want to like step away from the interwebs a little bit more (laughs) and do more of that you know and and focus more on that and I'm talking to other people that I've known for years who also want to do that that don't see you know social media as the answer or the way to kind of make up for that you know genuine interaction well I think the uh, emperor's clothes are definitely showing in the era of social media because now we're starting to realize that at first it's all about just communicating meeting friends and having good times Mm. and social media has played such a great part in the change of our culture and society that now they're realizing that words do matter yes and ultimately Ultimately, um, public image is probably the most important thing that you have to consider if you decide to step into the internet world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've talked to a lot of friends, and uh, I tell them, I say, look, you got to put up a Facebook site. Yeah, it's nice and dandy. Show your family, show your kids, talk about good times. Yeah. And then you go into this other route, and all of a sudden you're espousing your personal views on the world, whether it be yeah, religion, politics. You, you go across the board. Mm-hmm. And what's happened because of that is now all of a sudden people are no longer listening or enjoying what other people have to do. It's it's kind of like this bombastic battle back and forth. Yeah. Oh, you, you do this, or oh, you say that. I just got into it with somebody today on Facebook on the MAB website Uh because a friend of mine was promoting our gig and he had a picture of himself with a Make America Great hat and all of a sudden there's 20 punks pummeling this guy verbally. I went in there and I I defended him. I said, okay, check it out. This guy was roading for bands 40 years ago. He roaded for us Mm. and all he was trying to do was promote our gig. And then I basically laid into a couple of guys and, you know, I said, your bullshit detector needs to be replaced because you're trying to define good and bad based off of an image of a MAGA hat. Right. So in the end, I, I do the punk thing. I'm not. I'm very good with my words. So I basically told him. I said I'm very. I'm very disappointed that this website has kind of come into this uh, uh, pointed political slant. Oh gosh. And I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinions, and yeah. I'm willing to defend anybody's opinion, even if it doesn't agree with mine. Maga doesn't agree with me, but yeah. I'm not about to sit here and and, and stand on for my friend or not stand for him. But I was trying to make the point. The guy was trying to promote my gig. Maybe if you came down last night and saw us you wouldn't be talking such shit exactly totally understood but that's great if he's helping promote yeah yeah on the other hand i also said in the same thing and you got to agree with this if you don't i'd love to get into that conversation (laughs) the fact that he wore the hat and promoted the gig yeah it's like it's interesting. He lured, it's like he lured them to doing that so the thing i told them i said you drank the kool-aid who knows if that's really him? Maybe he did it for that purpose too. Or maybe he didn't. But reaction. ultimately, you get these people that are all sensitive about politics, and they start trolling them. And on the other hand, it's kind of like I don't like it when when conservative people troll me. But you know what? The key to that is always have your facts straight. You know what? Nowadays, with the amount of information that's online, yeah. it only takes you five minutes to figure out what's really going on with the subject and arm yourself for a discourse. Mm-hmm. But the problem with social media 
media is people don't want to listen. You can try discourse, but for people that don't want to read what you say or believe it yeah. or agree or disagree, then it's a wasted effort. And in that case, it's kind of like social media is kind of a bullshit location to basically get trolled. Yeah, pretty much. That's what I feel like it's become. But I wonder if in comparison it would be like, um, the, I don't know if you remember the Bromley contingent, like the people who would hang out around the Sex Pistols, like Susie Sue before she was a musician. They had a whole crowd of people, like the King's Road, that whole thing. And they would wear, you know, swastikas, Nazi, you know, regalia or whatever, not because they were sympathetic. It's no, because, it's the shock value of the culture. Right, right. You know, Malcolm, no, I, I know all about that. I grew yeah. up right through the middle of it. Mm-hmm, and I totally mm-hmm. saw the most interesting thing that I felt about the pistols. I'm at a party one night. This is before I became a punk. Mm-hmm. I'm at this party in the East Bay with all these East Bay rocker guys, all the long hair, all the women's clothing. <laughs> yeah. And they had the TV on. It was a Saturday night. And CBS News was doing a one-hour expose on the rise of the sex pistols. <laughs> and I'm watching this, and everybody's looking at it, and they're all saying, oh, it's all bullshit. And, uh. <laughs> but they, they weren't paying attention to what was in the documentary, which was essentially mm-hmm. they were detailing how Malcolm McLaren would shop the band from record company to record company. To me, this is totally brilliant. They were shopping the band. The, the, the record companies were outright giving them the cash and letting them sign on the dotted line. Then they would realize what they signed, and they would cut them, but they never asked for the money back. So Malcolm McLaren was literally making hundreds of thousands of dollars on all these bogus record contracts yep. because he was selling the band and they were buying it until they realized what they bought. And to me, that was totally brilliant. I'm just going, now there's a businessman. There's a guy that maybe he's a ripoff guy, but I'm telling yeah. you what, he's he's definitely figured out how to beat the system and get something for himself. Didn't help the band at all. You know, he wasn't into the band. He was into mm. his promotion thing. Yes. The Sex Pistols were a, fa- a prefab four. And unless anybody else has an argument against that, mm-hmm. you can't deny it. They were like the monkeys. They were just punks. I'm not going to deny it, but I and, loved it. <laughs> and, and, you know, there was just a thing. There was yeah. a whole bunch of stuff on the Internet about this documentary on Epics where they brought up all these old punk rockers. Oh, yeah. I started and watching Apparently, the there one, yeah. was a discourse between Marky, Marky, Marky Ramone, Ramone yeah. and John Lydon. Yeah. And John Lydon, um, I'll, I'll be very honest. Yeah. This guy knows how to communicate. And he was basically cutting Marky Ramone off at the knees about who was a punk and when did this happen. And the ultimate thing that I think he... Marky Ramon didn't realize was that, look, this guy's as skilled at this. He's not a dumb guy. And the reason he does that is because he's not breaking character. And you feel you fell for his Kool-Aid too. And I remember people were remarking in that documentary, I'm gonna see it someday, but they yeah. were saying Henry Rollins is sitting off the side of the yeah, stage yeah, yeah. and he's putting his head down because he's cracking up about the whole thing. He didn't want to get involved. Smart guy. Smart, yeah. Smart guy. Because you know, unless you could be as witty and on the moment as John Lydon, don't you the don't bear. go there with him. Don't go with her because otherwise, you know, end up well, that guy's an asshole. Well, what did you think? What did you really what think? What were you expecting? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that to me is like, okay, in the case of punks, yeah. the biggest asshole in the room usually wins. It's it's just human nature and the truth. Well. My father, <laughs> he was he was a Sicilian man from Brooklyn, New York. Nice. He grew up the hard way oh, in the yeah. Depression. Yes. And 
I loved and feared that man, and I always referred to him lovingly mm-hmm. as the king of assholes. I watched him work his verbal judo on, on people <laughs> and just verbally melt people. So I see a guy like John Lydon, yeah. and to me, he's hilarious because my father could melt him too. <laughs> so this is the thing that I learned about uh, 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 words and speaking and verbal defenses and such. Yeah. And it's just to me, it's like, look, John Lydon has a great shtick, and obviously he's going to maintain that until he gets to the grave and I respect it but at the same time too it's like I wouldn't get in a conversation with him unless I could be as clever as he is and it's not difficult but one has to think just a little bit before they open their mouth I agree I bet it was an I want to watch that too I only saw the first episode the one where they talk about the New York scene but I think the London one comes later that should be interesting. Well, and then, you know what's interesting about these conversations about all those scenes back then yeah. is that here we are 40 years later and San Francisco is doing its best to represent its history and we talk about the Avengers and we talk about the nuns. Yes. And the rest of the world sees this as a little back backwater hole Mm. and the truth is no we were very vital and important to the punk scene because san francisco has always been been seen as a place of alternative thinking of creative and alternative ways of being able to write to to perform Mm -hmm. to do comedy yeah and it's a rich history in that but the world never gave san francisco its due for the kind of things it produced now on the other hand Mm -hmm. bands like the dead kennedys and flipper they've definitely brought the level up to a point where okay now you're going to recognize it because number one the people enjoy what's going on and they they get in on the joke they dig it you know (laughs) they dig well it's like okay for instance my son sent a a picture with the meme oh name this name the band the punk band that this picture is based on they had picture robert ted and john f kennedy And of course. I was going to answer that question because, number one, it's like, I'm not going to indignify myself to the things that I already know. So I started making up silly names. We had this contest. <laughs> and in the end, my wife won. So she came up with an alternative name for that picture. Yeah. Instead of Dead Kennedys, she called it Fuck Marilyn. <laughs> I told you she won. Creative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Wait, didn't that happen here in San Francisco? <laughs> Boy, you know, the truth the truth might be crazier than we all want to wish for. Yeah. Well, there are some great bands for sure, but it's great that you guys are back and, you know, people are, you know, more energized than, than they ever have been, honestly. So I feel like it was bound to happen. Yeah, there's a sense of destiny in all this. And... Jimmy Crucifix, um, once again, he's been around for a long, long time. He's been in the community here in San Francisco for almost that whole 40 years. But I'm going to confess, um, we're originally from Fremont. And, of course, if you you said you were from Fremont back then, they would dismiss you immediately. (laughs) But you know what? Here's the deal. We realized that we were outliers. We were from the suburbs. The suburbs were void, null and void. And that didn't stop us at all because we realized, that, right, we'll give you a run for your money. Mm-hmm. We may not. We may be a little bit smarter on our instruments, but we also know how to play and, sh- and show people what it's all about. So the best revenge was always do a show that people are going to remember. And we were loved by guys like Dirk Dirksen because yeah. he could talk about the things that we did. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it put his club on the map, made it more notorious. So we, we pulled some stunts that probably should have got us arrested. <laughs> yeah. But in the end, Dirk loved it because it was like he knew that we would 
surprise people good bad or otherwise mm-hmm. and in the end that's what that's what people are looking for they're looking for a cheap thrill and we would provide that nice yeah it must have been hard to come by back then um, actually we didn't know what we were doing and the things <laughs> that we were doing was just like we're not going to tell anybody we're using a fog machine and flash pots and next thing you know somebody pulls a fire alarm four fire trucks are on broadway <laughs> and they're coming through the side door just as we blow off the flash pots mm. and yeah the next week dirk has a meeting talking to all the bands next time you decide to use uh pyrotechnics or this or that and and one of the guys from the band that hired us he's in the corner going we didn't know they're going to use it blah 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 and we're laughing like hell at him it's like yeah yeah you were the sucker <laughs> and then they'll say you'll never it's like Ed Sullivan, you'll never play this show again it's like we just did thank you very much one time and that's all you need but Dirk, Dirk brought us back many times, and we've tried to provide memorable performances. And once again, we got caught both on film and on TV, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. those things stand. So it's like, you could tell me about what band you're in, but unless you got caught telegenically in a film, in a documentary, yeah, it's like... Yeah, it's like I don't have to talk about it. It's like it's there. Go go see DOA write a passage. You're going to see a six-foot guy in a nun's outfit playing a harmonica in a microphone that doesn't have a chord. <laughs> and then they're going to interview a 13-year-old girl that performed. We brought in an underage girl to perform with the band. Yeah. And the, 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 documentary, the documentary guys are totally fascinated. What's a, a little girl doing in this club? And she was part of it. The guy was doing an exorcism skit. And she uh, was a possessed child. And he was go. the nun. And mm. Yeah, go on and on. <laughs> but look. They could have gotten Layla and the Snakes. They could have gotten the Weirdos. They were on the bill that night. They're so but, great. But yeah, guess what? We got we got the the, the glamour shot, and I'm totally <laughs> thankful. Nice. And where can people find you online? We have a Facebook site. Go to yep. the next SF uh, on Facebook, mm-hmm. and we're constantly posting pictures and things we're doing. We're going to post up the announcement that you know you're doing the podcast here, so yeah. we'll make sure we get some traction from from your uh, show here. Yep. And once again, we appreciate everybody coming out to the shows and Absolutely. checking us out. And uh, it's it's just really nice to be out there and and, and performing. And, uh, you know, I, I break guitars. I do funny things. And, uh, <laughs> That's always fun to watch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People are having a good time. The only thing is, nowadays, you got to make sure that nobody gets hurt. Back then, we weren't paying attention. You it was care, fortunate yeah. that somebody didn't end up, you know, getting a guitar in the forehead or something. When they freaking stage dive, though, did they do it from behind or did they do it from the front? Because I'm getting it from both sides. Uh, they would tend to do it from the sides, more like. <laughs> But on the other hand, there were times uh, I would be performing, and a guitar player would kick me from behind. I'd fly right onto somebody's table. Ay ay ay! Yeah, yeah. No, that was it was it was an interesting thing. Then there was a performance where Mary Monday was performing, and that was the night I was taking her place in the band, mm-hmm. and I literally threw her off the stage. <laughs> And people were pissed. People were pissed. Yeah. But the truth was, I made it look like I got tossed off the stage and knocked out. So they got me out of the club before somebody could get to me. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. We, we pulled all sorts of crazy stuff in that place. So and it was, it, I mean, once again, good times. Mm-hmm. People people had a great time. And uh, I don't think you, I don't know if they could do that in a club now. I'm sure they can. It, yeah. For the moment, though, mm. it's like the stuff you take back with it. It's like, hey, son. <laughs> don't be lighting up 
flash pots in a club where there's something else going upstairs where the fire department's going to show up because you'll probably get <laughs> arrested for a false fire alarm. Oh, gosh. All kinds of fun. Uh, and it's going to be happening on July 13th. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> the next flipper, fright wig. Anybody else playing? <laughs> no. No. Well, you know, we're keeping it short here. Short and sweet. It's like the good old days where it's just, you know, fit in as many bands as you can. I think they still do that, actually. But, um, yeah, it's going to be an exciting evening. And uh, thanks again for stopping on by. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. And stay tuned for more Mutiny Radio.
Check, check. <laughs> What's up, everyone? How's it going? Welcome to Mutiny Radio Podcast. Se puede 